0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: Friends, we're going to be looking at Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12 today. So if you open your Bibles and read along with me. Matthew 2. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God indeed. Uh, If you ever met me before, hello, my name is Coy. I'm the associate pastor here and it's so good to see all your lively faces, some elf hats and Santa hats around as well. It's so good to see you all here today. A few years ago on the US version of Family Feud, the survey asked the question, who is the king? The top answer, Elvis Presley. When I read that, I was like, who's that? Uh, Boomer, settle down. I know who he is, okay? He's the guy that you see that he's that portly fellow that sings every night in Vegas, apparently. That's Elvis Presley. He was the clear-cut number one choice as the king. A few other top options were Martin Luther King, a very American answer. NBA legend LeBron, the King James, another American answer. And the Burger King, also... (laughs) A very American answer. And it's a great question, I think, because for the average person, there are just so many possibilities. Depending on where you grew up or what generation you're in or even what interests you have, the question of who is the king would differ from person to person. Like it doesn't come as too much of a shock that Americans would think of their own musical legend, Elvis, as the king, while if you asked a Brit, they might think of their own monarchy Or if you ask an Aussie, they might think of Wayne the King Carey, Spin King Shane Warne, or King of the Mountain Peter Brock. Obviously, sport is our royalty here in Australia. It makes sense that the the picture and description of a king varies from place to place, person to person. But I think what would shock many is if we attached the description of a king to that of the season that we're in now. Like if we attach it to, to the classic Christmas scene, You know, the baby in a manger with Mary and Joseph standing over in head coverings and a robe, with a a cow, a sheep, a foal gathered around the manger and shepherds bowing on their knees, wise men holding gifts. If you ask the average person to describe a king, I doubt many, if any at all, would describe for you this Christmas picture of Jesus' birth. And yet our passage today does exactly that. See, here in Matthew chapter 2, the author is telling his readers that the king who had been long promised in the Bible has arrived. This Jesus born in Bethlehem is the fulfillment from God. Jesus is the king and he is here. As quite a remarkable claim to make by the author. I say that because this isn't some simple game show quiz question asking who you think the king is, but this is the word of God. This is God's word, scripture proclaiming that a king who is promised by God himself, who according to his promise will reign on his throne forever, it's a remarkable claim by Matthew because it demands a response. It demands a response because if this king is indeed the one who reigns in eternity... It means it affects not just the Israelites in the past, not just the readers in Jesus' time, but it affects everybody in history. It means even for us today, we are either under the reign of this king or we're not. The question is asked, is this king your king? See, what we're going to see from our passage today are three Differing responses to this arrival of the promised king. But before that, it's important that we grasp the weight of what we're of what they are responding to. It's important that we see that a lot has happened to lead up to this point in Matthew chapter two. Things that have been set up a while back, that there was a real reason for this birth narrative we read of today. And it started with a promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 13. God says to King David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, I remember the first time I went to my mum's homeland of Vietnam, I was six, and it was around Christmas time. And I remember being excited to go out to Saigon Square, a shopping center, where I would be able to see a Santa there to take photos with. I was so keen because. For a few years leading up to my six year, to, to being six, all the years I was quite spoiled, I was able to get photos with Santa over the years at John Martin's in Adelaide's Rundle Mall. That must have sounded like gibberish to many of you. I forgot that us South Australians speak a higher posh language. So sorry about that, Victorians. Right? But needless to say, I was so keen for these Santa photos. I had high expectations for this, this international Santa. So I got there, lined up. And I saw him, and I saw all my excitement disappear. Here he was, this Santa, who had all the standard red clothing and white beard, except in on one hand he had a can of Heineken. And he would take puffs of a cigarette in between photos. And worst of all, he wasn't even round. He was slimmer than the candy canes he was giving out. Right? So for six-year-old me, I was thinking, this Santa, this is not my kind of Santa. Right? To me, he was a budget version a way worse copy of the real thing. So all I would think about was, Mom, when can I go home to John Martin's where the real Santa is? This is what it was like for the people of Israel. See, after the promise given to David in Second Samuel, Israel, God's chosen people, had great expectations for this king who will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. But all they would get, one king after the other, were dud versions budget additions, Coles brand kings who would reign as kings in faulty, sometimes even horrendous ways. Actually, if this is your first time here with us, we actually took a look at a few of the kings over the past few weeks now leading up to Christmas, which you can hear on our podcast. But what we saw was that there were times it felt like the promise was being fulfilled. It looked that way. Potential kings who were faithful to God and looked the part, but then it would all so quickly unravel. Then there were times where it was so bad, kings so far from the promise that it almost felt like they were opposed to the promise in the first place. And so all throughout, for the people of God, there was a lot of waiting. When, Lord, will the king be here? Will the promise ever be fulfilled, God? Then one day, a word came to Mary. Mary. What this season, what Christmas, what the birth of Jesus is announcing is the king is here. The one God's people have so long waited for has finally arrived. And boy, is he unlike any other king before him, which is what Matthew wants to emphasize to all of his readers. Not only does Matthew start off his book with the genealogy of Jesus Highlighting Jesus' lineage from David, which fulfills the promise. But he also starts off Jesus' birth narrative with these amazing words. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is no mere human king, but this child Jesus to be born, the king promised by God who would reign on high, establishing his kingdom forever, will in the end be his very own son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. King Jesus is here. The fulfillment of the promise, those preceding pointed to him, and those eagerly waiting could now know him which is where Matthew has us in our passage today. See, the king has seemingly arrived and the news of this spread swiftly across Bethlehem, Jerusalem, all starting from a few wise men who in chapter 2, verse 2, had seen a star when it rose, indicating that the promised king of the Jews was here. A star prophesied from Numbers, chapter 24, understood as the coming king's arrival. And so trusting this, these wise men wanted to meet this king with word getting out that they were looking for this child. News that reached even the appointed king of the Jews at the time, King Herod, who upon hearing this, summoned the chief priests and scribes of the Jewish people, the experts in this, to confirm if this was all true. And in chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us of their response to Herod. Verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See what the chief priests and scribes do here is they confirm it. The wise men were onto something. They really, There really was a promise of a coming king who would rule over God's people like a shepherd. And the most religious of Jewish people all but affirm that this child born really could be the one. See, that's a massive call from the chief priests and scribes because they were men who knew scripture meticulously. They were the ones who people would come to uh, with questions about God. They were the ones viewed as closest to God. God's spokespeople, professional uh, Bible scholars and teachers, they were virtuous, pious, holy people. These chiefs, chiefs, priests and scribes. So, out of all people, they should have been the ones who were most eagerly waiting for this coming King, knowing full well the the painstaking wait for this promised King of God to come. So, this news should have been huge for them to hear, right? This baby could be it, the King could finally be here. Quick, let's go see the wise men. Let's ask them where the star has appeared. Let's go with them and see this promised king. This is the response you'd expect to see from such holy men. But what's surprising is that after they confirmed the prophecy to Herod that the coming king would indeed could indeed be this child, we see that the chief priests and scribes did absolutely nothing with it. Contrast them with the wise men who would go on and travel far and wide to find this child, yet the, for the chief priests and scribes, what do they do? We don't hear from them again in our passage. They likely went back to their meticulous study of the word of God, went back to their scholarly ways. No care for the possible answer to their faith's biggest question. No impact from what could be the fulfilment of the promise of their, that their ancestors had been so long waiting for. No regard for what they had spent most of their lives reading and studying for. It's here that we read of the first clear response upon hearing of the coming king's arrival. It's a response of indifference. See, for the chief priests and scribes, out of all the people, they should be the first people sprinting to the front of the line to find out where is this child? Theologian R. Kent Hughes says, these religious experts pushed the buzzer, won their prize and went back to bury their heads in the word of God. As Paul put it, they were always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's a reaction that can come as quite a shock considering their religious status, but also not so surprising because we live in a world of indifference. Like I think about how I grew up in the era of whatever, you know, like, like it was actually cool to not care about stuff. Like here in, in the schoolyard, uh, only, only lame wads would be like passionate and enthusiastic about stuff, you know. And it's, it's an attitude that has carried on into the generation today. The, the seebs generation, slang for can't be bothered. Can you help me with groceries? Seabes. Hey, mate, your shoelace is untied. seebs. Hey, I think, mate, you drop your wallet. The right? seeps. Millennials. Well, I'm one myself. Pick up your socks. Right? But while indifference can be more of a lighthearted thing, there's actually an underlying, There's an underlying danger to it because it so easily seeps into every crevice of our lives and in particular into our faith. Christians who pack the pews every Sunday and hear the good news of Jesus but just like the priests and scribes do nothing with it. Believers who would prefer to concern themselves with rituals and legalistic living as they happily overlook the king that has arrived. Those who have heard the Christmas story for the 20th, 30th time and it affects them all the same each year without care to the question, is this your king, posed by Matthew's early chapters, the chief priests and scribes unequivocally respond, no care for Jesus, a response that can be just like ours. So, you know, the, the thing about indifference is it's never that a person is like this because that's who they are. Like you can't not care for everything. But I think what's at the core of people's indifference to particular things is because they value something higher than what they don't care for. The chief priests and scribes obviously cared a lot about religion. To study it 24-7, to know scripture back to front points to them that they loved religion. But what they valued in religion they valued greater than the very God whom they were supposed to worship first and foremost. Their priorities were out of whack which is a consistent description of what they were like all throughout the Gospels. And what it reveals to us is the temptation for our indifference, that our response of indifference often stems from us valuing something greater than the King Jesus we read about, that we'd rather prioritise our finance, our fame, our fun, our family, our freedom over our faith. We become indifferent to the King who has been born, hearing the good news on that same Christmas service every year, but then after the service is done, we go back to our regular ways, burying our heads, time, and effort into whatever we value more. We don't realise that what we've done is we've actually put a crown on these very things. Evangelical pastor Charles Swindle says, My order of priorities reflects the level of my commitment to Christ. Whoever or whatever is in first place, if it isn't the Lord Jesus, is in the wrong place. Have you noticed that these things that we so easily crown are all temporary, fleeting, momentary, gone when we're gone? As I said earlier, Jesus is a king unlike any other who reigns not just for a moment. He reigns for eternity. Revelation 5 describes Jesus, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He's the fulfillment of the promise. He is God himself. And yet to the chiefs, scribes and priests, it made no difference. Is our response just like theirs? So while the first response to the arrival of the promised king was met with inaction, our next response that we'll see was actually quite the opposite. As we read about the king who was ruling over the Jewish people at the time, King Herod, Who instead of showing inaction upon hearing the news of Jesus, he responds with hostility. Chapter 2, verse 3: When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. See, this is probably quite a reasonable reaction for somebody like Herod, because while he was the king of the Jews, he was appointed by the Romans, so he was quite hated by the Jewish people. So naturally for Herod, he knew that news of this possible true king now born was a threat to him, that he could be usurped. Another king could occupy his throne. But to paint an even more detailed picture of what kind of king Herod was, verse three has the description that Jerusalem was also troubled. Now, what does that mean? They were troubled because the city knew just how insecure Herod was. He was a king who was known to be insanely suspicious, often plagued by fear of those who could rival his power. He had three of his sons assassinated from fear of them overtaking him. Any smallest potential of threat to Herod and this person would be swiftly eliminated. You know, there was a saying in those days that said this, it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. So he was obviously a man of great power who ruled on high on his throne, and he wanted nobody to interfere with that. So in verse 7 and 8, where he asks the wise men to, to let him know when they find this child so that he can worship him, Herod is downright lying. We can be sure of this because if you keep reading on in the chapter, you'd see that Herod goes on and orders all male children to be killed in Bethlehem, hoping that one of those children would be the king that he has killed. his response was one of hostility. He despised the king even before he met him. He hated what Jesus meant for his own life. Theologian William Barclay sums it up, Herod was afraid that this little child was going to interfere with his life, his place, his power, and his influence, and therefore his first instinct was to destroy him. See, this was the response of a king, hostility towards the true one. But the thing is, it's not a response that's limited to royalty. See, a while ago, I knew a gentleman who was interested in Christianity, and he started attending my old church, but there came a point where the gospel of Jesus challenged how he lived. He knew that to follow Jesus, it meant ceasing his active party lifestyle, to no longer live drunkenly, promiscuously, and he couldn't do it. He stopped going to church and instead became quite bitter towards Christianity, thinking it was too much of an ask of someone to give up everything for this Jesus. In his book, Generation X Christian, author Drew Dyke, relates one interview with a young man who left Christianity to join the Wicca religion. Morning Hawk Apollo, who he renamed himself, which was a common practice in Wiccan practice, discussed his rejection of Christianity with candor. He says this, ultimately why I left is that the Christian God demands that you submit to his will alone. In Wicca, it's just the other way around. Your will is paramount. We believe in gods and goddesses, but the deities we choose to serve are based on our wills. See, the thing we have to remember is that the promise is one of a coming king. And what this means is, is when somebody lives under the rule and reign of a king, it means the king has authority over all of their life. It means we live in submission to the king's will. The king has dominion and rule over every aspect of his people's lives, which is exactly what Jesus said to those in his kingdom. Luke chapter 9, And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, to live under the rule of Jesus is to live as though he has authority over every aspect of your life. Is Jesus the king in your home? Is Jesus the king in your workplace? Is he the king in your weekdays, your weekends, your everyday mundane, your highs and your lows? Does the king's word guide you in your every step? Is communicating with this king a a, a norm in your life? Does your heart and life reflect one who is in allegiance with this king? I think for many of us, the answer would be no. Just like that young partying gentleman that I talked about or that man who changed his name to Morninghawk, for many of us, the idea of this king ruling over our life brings about feelings of, of hatred and hostility. See, we see Jesus as somebody who interferes with our life. We want to live how we want to live. We want to do what we want to do. Plenty of us who have grabbed the crown and put it on our own heads. Author Mark Sayers says about our world, today we want the kingdom without the king. You see, Jesus is a threat to anyone and everyone who thinks seriously about him. Because in his arrival, if Jesus is king, then you and I are not. Like Herod, we are dethroned. It means we can't lead our lives any longer. But it's Jesus, the king, who dictates our life. And so what do people do with this threat? Like Herod, they aim to destroy him many who gladly kill Jesus in their life, turning away from him or anything to do with him, some even making it their life's mission to oppose this Jesus. So to the question, is this king your king? Like Herod, we too respond with hatred and hostility. See, the Bible tells us that there exists in all of us a hostility towards God. By nature, we are opposed to him. And it's because you, me, my friend, all of us are sinners. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How grievous that our natural inclination is not indifference towards Jesus, but antagonism. In the deepest depths of our hearts, our disposition is to put the crown on our heads and live by our rule. Because of our sin, we naturally lean to living how we want and not have Jesus interfere with any of that. Because of our sin, our first instinct is to sit on the throne and kill the king that threatens it. R.C. Sproul says, if God were to expose his life to our hands, he would not be safe for a second. We would not ignore him. We would destroy him. It's a sobering thought to think of the evil and hostility that plagues us and this world, which is exactly why we needed this promised king. Not only was he the promised king from the line of David, not only was he God with us who came down and walked among his people, but he is the king who came to save us from our sins. The evil, the enmity, the hostility that resides within our hearts, Jesus came to conquer. Colossians 1, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. See, the child who had been born is the hope for the whole world. Jesus is the king like no other king who came down to this mess and took his kingship all the way to Calvary, where he would be coronated with a crown of thorns, lifted up high by nails on a cross, worshipped mockingly with a sign above his head that read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, and he died for our sins. This is our King. There is no King like Jesus, for only he could take on the wrath of sinners and fulfill the promise of saving the most, the most hostile who should believe in him, us. So the question remains, is this king your king? See, while we've seen the lack of response from, from the chief priests and scribes and Herod's hateful response to the news of a coming king, I wanted to end with what Matthew has wanted his readers to see all along, that there really is an appropriate response to all this, and that is to respond in worship. Chapter 2, verse 9, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. See, these wise men, these magi, upon finally knowing where Jesus lay, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. John Piper says, it would have been much to say they rejoiced. More to say they rejoiced with joy. More to say they rejoiced with great joy. And even more to say they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. See, this was the joy of those who value the Saviour above all things. And they have finally found their King. A King worthy of wholehearted, faithful, surrendering worship. Theirs was a joyful worship for the wise men have now found and know the hope for humanity, Jesus. See, there's a deep joy that comes in submitting to King Jesus. A deep joy that we have a king who has stepped down from his throne, that we could enter his throne room with him forever. How many kings would give up their lives That we might have ours. There is no king like Jesus. There's something quite striking about this picture of the wise men bowing to the child Jesus. Here we have grown men, well respected and held in high esteem, yet men who fell at Jesus' feet and worshipped him, humbling themselves, acknowledging his lordship, believing his word submitting to his rule, praising his name. See, these wise men respond the only way they know how, upon hearing that the king is here, they respond with worship. So I want to ask one last time, is this king your king? Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is the King who has promised Emmanuel, and he has saved us from our sins. So let's come to him now with the same response as the wise men who had found their Savior King. Let's come to this King in worship. So why don't we stand and sing praises?